0: This is the third Sunday in Lent, and the readings that we have been given this week are an embarrassment of riches for the preacher, so there's always the, uh, the, the, the opportunity and the possibility to uh, say too much, so I'll try to resist. But I want to preach about Exodus, about the reading from Romans, and from the story of the Samaritan woman at the well that you just heard me read from John's Gospel Um, One of the benefits of the revised Common Lectionary is that we're hearing voices speak in the biblical witness that were uh, not as prominent as they uh, are now. So women's voices and uh, their influences on the way in which uh, the early church operated and how they understood the issues for that day and time of acceptance and inclusion is very important. And this story is about a Samaritan woman who exercises some real missionary work among her own people. The reading from Exodus is one of the murmuring texts in the Hebrew Bible. I love the murmuring texts. There there are more than one of them, and uh, they're all about how uh, communities complain And how they are anxious and worried and nervous, and so it's a good testimony in the biblical witness that uh, not a lot changes. So uh, (laughs) we have we have this replicated over and over again, and we certainly do in the in the New Testament. So I want to say something to you about how Moses understands leadership. These, are, these murmuring texts are about leadership and how they're exercised in anxious times and uh, how Moses uh, leads the people uh, with God's protection and help, but um, uh, shows some things about the nature of God's work in the world, which we need always to hold close to our own hearts In the story, the people of Israel are wandering in the wilderness and they're worried and anxious. I I was going to say this, I almost forgot. You know, you hear me preach all the time about the uh, synoptic theory in the New Testament or the two source theory about Matthew, Mark and Luke. And uh, I do this because I think it's important for people to know something about all that. Well, the the first place that biblical scholarship and biblical criticism began to be used now 150 or nearly 200 years ago was uh, in the study of the Pentateuch, the study of the first five books of the Old Testament. And so there is something that is important in the study of the, the first five books known as the Documentary Hypothesis. And you you need to keep this on ice so that you can amaze your friends. (laughs) The documentary hypothesis says that uh, the first five books of the Old Testament came from four sources. And they have names. The Yahwist, the Elohist, the Priestly, and the Deuteronomist. And these are part of the oral tradition that precedes the writing down. And they also are the writing down from these various versions that then comes together as the biblical text as we have it. The Pentateuch, the Torah, was written at, during the Babylonian captivity. So it is describing events that occurred many years before that. If the Babylonian captivity occurred, say, in 589 B.C., we're writing about Moses living in 1250 B.C. And so these stories come from these sources and these traditions. So just so that you can amaze your friends, you're hearing mostly today from J, the Yahweh source, and P, the priestly source. And how do we know those things? Well, each of these sources have certain characteristics, certain linguistic styles, certain ways of describing things, and certain emphases. So the Yahweh strain would be interested in speaking about God in an anthropomorphic way. You know, walking around on the earth, closing the door of the ark when Noah got in there with all the animals and his family. The priestly source is concerned with geography and where these things happened and what the rituals were that were used by Moses when he struck the rock and what did he use and how did all that happen. So we know some things about the sources of all of this. Just so you know this, the Elohist is the god of the mountaintop in the clouds. The sort of unseen god. The Yahwist is the is the God physically present to us in history. The priestly source is about all of the cultic aspects of the people as they develop their response to God's acts uh, in their midst. And the Deuteronomist is interested in the law and how you do this stuff and what you're supposed to do. So Moses is beside himself. We have complaining, rebellion, general upset. And one of the reasons for that is that the people of Israel corporately are suffering from what uh, every age does, and that is they're looking at their past through rose-colored glasses. One of the great narratives of the people of Israel is that they came out of bondage in Egypt through through the wilderness to the promised land, and they escaped the oppression of Pharaoh. Now they're out there in the wilderness wandering around and they're looking back at their captivity in Egypt fondly and wishing that they were back there among, as it says in other texts, the flesh pots of Egypt. They wish they could be there. So what is Moses's task? First of all, he complains to God. And he says, I just don't know what I'm going to do. I'm at my wit's end here. And God says, you get out in front of the people and you take some of the elders with you and you go to the place that I'm going to tell you to go to and there you will take the staff that you struck the Nile with and you will strike the rock that I tell you and the water will come. So Moses does as he is instructed and the people follow him and the elders. He strikes the rock and this inexhaustible source of water springs up. Early Christians will read this and say this is a type for baptism. This is the water of life that we participated in sacramentally and now we see that this water is an affirmation that God provides both in spiritual terms and in physical terms. And it also shows us that God is present. Moses turns the focus of the people of Israel away from the place of remembered good times to a future where they will receive a new self-definition and a deeper and fuller understanding of God's purposes for them corporately and personally as they live in the midst of great ambiguity and uncertainty. And Moses will have to remember this leadership lesson in other places. So any one of you who exercise any species of leadership at all in your life in big and small ways need to know, as we say over and over again, the practice of the non-anxious presence, the defocusing of the place of remembered good times and the focus on the place where you are now going to receive a new self-definition and a new, and newer and deeper understanding. And what's involved there? It's a certain amount of letting go, isn't it? It's a certain amount of trust in God. In every one of these murmuring texts, we see two things. The people are rebellious, are second-guessing God, and believe believe in themselves in an overweening sense. And in the midst of that reality, we see a God who is always gracious, a God who is always present, A God who is not a cutter and a runner. A God who is faithful. And through this, this is the God who is going to lead the people into the promised land and into a deeper and clearer focus about what it is they ought to be doing and what God has in mind for them. This is something we would understand in our age as both corporate and personal Paul is not talking much about water today, which is the theme really in the the reading from Exodus and in the gospel. But he's talking about uh, some of the necessary components for Christian maturity, emotionally, spiritually, and mentally. And so here he is speaking initially, of course, he mentions one of the classic things uh, that is a centerpiece of Reformation theology, which is justification by grace through faith. But he moves beyond that to speak about something else, uh, which I would call participation in Christ. It may interest you to know that over the last 35 or 40 years in biblical scholarship, there's been an enormous sea change in the conversation about justification by grace through faith. And there are even a number of Reformed theologians who would suggest that the centerpiece of Paul's theology is not justification by grace through faith, but participation in Christ. And he is speaking about it today in Romans. One of the things I like about this is that he raises the issue that is a a good issue to raise in Lent, because it's the season for it, and that is, what does enduring suffering do for us if anything I mean all of us know that there is some species of suffering that is uh, not redemptive and it may sound it may trivialize this to some but Paul is not speaking just about the great and the grand suffering that human beings go through he's speaking about the quotidian sufferings that we all go through you and me every day like getting stuck in traffic that's suffering you know For many people. So what does the ability to remain non-anxious in the midst of that kind of suffering? Paul says it produces endurance. Endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. That has been given to us. God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us. What does this Holy Spirit give you in terms of the building of your character? It gives you peace. It gives you hope. And it gives you participation in Christ. Where do we encounter this on a regular basis if we don't believe it, see it, or feel it? We do in the Episcopal Church in our sacramental life. And the tradition with a capital T says when you come to church and you receive the Eucharist on a weekly basis, you are now being given some spiritual tools that you can use for the coping with the challenges and the opportunities that are in front of you on a daily basis. And that through that process you begin to build character. I took a class some years ago from uh, Dr. John Sanford, an Episcopal priest. He's a Jungian therapist. He's fairly famous. He's written a lot of books on that. And it was about dreams. But in the course of his uh, lectures, he said, uh, character, as we get it in the Greek text, often the word, uh, can also mean living your life according to certain principles that it develops sort of a a resting place for the way in which you uh, cope with the challenges and the opportunities that are in front of you. So Paul is speaking today about the connection, the, the bond that we have with Christ and the benefits that attach to that as we seek to be faithful. Peace, hope, participation in Christ. In John's gospel, we have, we have the story of the Samaritan woman, a little history. The Samaritans were the people that were left behind uh, when the Babylonian captivity occurred, when the Babylonians came down and took a lot of people out of Jerusalem and uh, the area, and took them back to Babylon in the Babylonian captivity. They were not taken. And they developed during the period of the Babylonian captivity, uh, their own understanding of uh, how they practiced their religious cult, what constituted the uh, centerpiece of their worship, and so on. So the Samaritans did not believe Jerusalem was the location. They believed it was Mount Gerizim. They accepted only the first five books of what we call the Old Testament. And they had other practices that were different from the Jews. By the time of Jesus, uh, there was not only differences between the Samaritans and the Jews, there was outright hostility, enmity between Samaritans and Jews. The idea that Jesus would have even been in Samaria, in that area, uh, was uh, unthinkable to many. And here he is, Adding insult to injury by being at Jacob's well with a woman, a Samaritan woman, who does not appear to be too reputable. And it may be funny to say this to you, but what is she doing there in the ancient Near East? What is she doing drawing water at noon? That's something you do early in the morning. She's out there at noon drawing water, and she runs into Jesus, who's sitting there because he's tired. And maybe not a little out of sorts. So they start to have a conversation. Of course, one of the favorite lines that I love in this story is uh, Jesus, after they have the exchange about the living water, which I'll speak of in a moment, he said, um, uh, go call your husband. She says, "Uh, sir, I have no husband he says, you're quite right to say you have no husband. You have had five husbands and the man you are living with now is not your husband. And her response is, sir, I believe you are a prophet. (laughs) Uh, There's some, some deep, you know, stuff that could go on and on in terms of scholarship, but there's some commentaries that say this may be symbolic The meaning is now lost, but this may have some reference to the Samaritans' commitment to the first five books of the Old Testament only. Five, you know, and now you've got a sixth, and what's that? You know, some rogue piece of literature that uh, uh, we don't recognize, or something like that. But he speaks to her, and he said, "I'm going. I am here to bring you water." That is uh, where you drink it and you'll never be thirsty. That this will have, uh, this will slake your, your, your spiritual thirst. And he uses in the original text words that have to do with an inexhaustible spring of water. When he speaks of living water, he doesn't mean just water gathering in a well, but it's that underground river, you know, that's in the, that, that, is, that is inexhaustible. That's what, he's, what the word in Greek is used uh, in this text. So she begins to see who he is. This is uh, one of those passages in John's Gospel where Jesus appears to be God walking the earth. He looks at her and she said, I know the Messiah is going to come. And he looks at her and said, it's me. You're looking at him." You know, elsewhere, he's a little more cagey about that. But apparently right now, here's what it says in John's gospel. This is a story about how this woman comes to believe and the influences on her through that process that she is able to commend to others who bring them to belief. And here's what went on. She understood that she was being accepted and received in her sinful, vulnerable, or shameful state. She was being listened to and taken seriously, though the listener knows all the facts. She was having one's deepest hunger fed, being loved for who one is, and invited to become greater. She was sharing one's experience with others, the townspeople, who respond. And then she was becoming part of a community of believers, which is the support and the way in which we hold each other up. So remember she goes back to the village, the people come, they listen to her, they come to believe, and others come and see and hear Jesus, and they come to believe because they have seen him and heard him. This really is a story in Lent, you know, repentance, reconciliation, godly motives, It's about the processes that occur on a regular basis in all souls who yearn to know God more deeply about renewing and revivifying their commitments, about being reconverted. And this will happen more than once, even to the people who came to believe through this. And that's one of the things we always have to realize. You know, even in the wilderness, Jesus was tempted but we will see then throughout the witness of the Gospels that this will recur for even Jesus, that he will have to struggle with these temptations throughout his ministry, just as you and I have to struggle uh, during the challenges and the opportunities that we go through. So this week, uh, see if you are able to turn your face away from the place of remembered good times and to look into the future where God has a deeper and fuller definition of what uh, your role is to be. Each one of us has a role to play in God's plan for the cosmos in big and small ways. Remember that you're unconditionally loved, accepted, and forgiven, and that gives you the strength to meet the challenges and the opportunities that are in front of you and to share that confidence with others. Amen.